Well, open your Bibles, if you have them, the Old Testament book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 4, as we're going to be wrapping up our study together. Uh, the book of Ruth is an incredible book, like all of Scripture, but the book of Ruth is special. It's a book that reminds us that the God we worship and serve, the God of the Bible, is a God who's able to take our greatest tragedies and turn them into the greatest triumphs. Uh, this is a book that could be read in one setting. We could have taken the time to read this book through and teach it in one uh, setting together, but one of the special things about studying it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, is in between the chapters, we get to wait in the tension of what God is doing. Uh, from the first chapter, which is full of tragedy, to the last chapter that we're going to read that's full of triumph, in between the chapters as we wait on the Lord to see what he's doing, it's an opportunity to take a step back and behold our God who is at work in the midst of grief who's at work in the midst of painful circumstances, difficulties, and even times of intense suffering. And how many of you know we, we don't appreciate times of grief or hardship or difficulty, but those are the times when we get to see the character of God and the presence of God most evident as we get to lean into who he is. It's a book that began with great tragedy. We talked about um, Naomi, who was kind of the focus of chapter 1. Naomi, she, along with her husband, had moved from their homeland in Bethlehem to a foreign land. They had moved to Moab, and with her husband, with her two sons, Malon and Kilion, they, the sons took on foreign wives, Moabite wives, Ruth and Orpah, and within the first five verses of the first chapter, tragedy hits. Naomi loses her husband, Elimelech. Naomi loses her two sons, Malon and Kilion, and all she has left are her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. She's in a foreign land. She has her daughters-in-law, and so she hears that bread has once again returned to Bethlehem, that God has visited his people, and so she makes a journey back. Ruth goes with her. Orpah goes back, and if you remember Ruth's words, because she encouraged both of them to return, Ruth said this. She said, no, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Your place of burial will be my own. She expressed her commitment to follow her in, as she sacrificed her home, her, her family, and everything she knew to follow after Naomi. And at the end of chapter one, because of the tragedy, Naomi's heart is full of grief. The people are excited to see her. It's been 10 years, and they say, isn't that, isn't that Naomi? Which means pleasant. Naomi says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Call me bitter because of the circumstances that had so hurt her heart, and she's been so grieved. She says, I, I left Bethlehem full, but I've come back empty. I have no husband. I have no sons. I have no hope to further the family line. She basically says, I, I have nothing. But in those times of tension, how many of you know those are the times when the abundant grace of God becomes most evident? We're reminded that as we, the story unfolds, we get to see more and more of God's grace as he turns this tragedy into a triumph. Chapter 2, you recall, um, God begins to move. Ruth, who is the daughter-in-law, she goes in the fields and gleans, and God gives her favor in the field of a man by the name of Boaz, who just happens to be um, a close relative of Naomi's husband who had passed away, Elimelech. His name is Boaz, and he shows favor to Ruth. 
He provides for her and tells his servants to do the same. He even invites her for dinner. At the end of chapter 2, she goes back home with enough grain to last her and her mother-in-law a very long time. But God's not done working. We were in chapter 3 last time, and if you recall, when we experience grief, God doesn't just give us spoonfuls of grace. He, 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 he pours bucketfuls of grace upon us. And that's so evident, not just in our lives, but in theirs as well. And if you remember, Naomi plays matchmaker. She tells Ruth, I want you to go to the threshing floor. You know, Boaz is going to be threshing wheat over there. And I want you to go. And after he's finished his meal and gone to bed and and is sleeping on the threshing floor as he's covered himself, I want you to go down there and I want you to uncover his feet and you know, it might be surprising for us how she, what she tells her to do. And she tells her to basically go to his feet and then uncover his feet. And in the middle of the night, midnight, I mean, probably from the wind that he feels on his feet that are cold, he's startled. And there he turns, if you remember, and there is a woman. And he says, who are you? And Ruth says, it's Ruth, your maidservant. She basically proposes marriage. She says, takes me under your wing. In other words, be my protector, be my provider. And there was a custom in ancient Israel in which God provided for those who were needy, especially those who had had passed away, those who had died, that God had provided what was called a kinsman redeemer who was a close relative, that's what kinsmen mean. Redeemer means that they could buy back property, they could buy back possessions, but they could also marry the wife of the deceased and to further the family line. And so Boaz could very much be the provider for this. And Ruth proposes marriage to him and Boaz responds favorably. He looks at her, a woman of virtue, moral excellence, and he describes her accordingly. He, she didn't go after the young men. She goes after Boaz, who's probably older in age. And as this occurs, Boaz tells her he wants to marry her, but there's a closer relative who has the option of taking on this role of kinsman redeemer. And by the end of the story, she stays for the night and he says, well, she heads out early in the morning. She wanted to make sure that um, uh, there was nothing moral, morally compromising there, but he was worried about her reputation. She leaves early in the morning. She goes back to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi, if you remember, tells her, sit quietly. In other words, wait patiently because Boaz will not rest until this is resolved, until a conclusion is brought. And if you were with us last time, we were, we've been waiting in that tension. Maybe some of you have read ahead or you've read ahead before, but as we wait in this tension with the suspense before us, now we get to see how the rest of the story unfolds as God continues to turn this tragedy into a great triumph as he continues to provide his abundant grace as the narrative unfolds. Chapter 4, verse 1 reads this way. Now Boaz went up to the gate, sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down, and he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech, and I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. 
If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, on that day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi. You must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witness this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth. She became his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you, the day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also, the neighbor women came uh, gave him a name saying, there, there is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Abinadab, and Abinadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David, the word of the Lord. An incredible Book, an incredible narrative and as we get to wrap up this final chapter we finally get to the place where we see that great tragedy of chapter one turn into a great triumph because that's the kind of God we worship and we serve if I could give you a couple headings that will guide our study today it would be first in the first 12 verses God makes a way God makes a way where there seems to be no way. And then in verses 13 to 22, God works in unexpected ways to turn seeming tragedies into great triumphs. Let's begin by the first 12 verses and really unpack how God makes a way. God makes a way in the first two verses by means of an invitation. If you remember at the end of chapter 3, Naomi takes time to talk to Ruth, and she has great confidence in Boaz. She says, sit quietly, wait patiently. She has confidence that Boaz will not rest until this, this issue is concluded so that he can be the husband of Ruth, but first he has to make sure this closer relative doesn't want her for his 
wife first. And so we see that there is an invitation given by Boaz. It says, now Boaz, what did he do? He went up to the gate. Why does he go to the gate? Well, the gate of the city was usually the place where legal proceedings take place, where the elders gather, where conversations of business take place. And as he goes to the gates, he, gate, he sits there. Why is he sitting there? Because sooner or later, this close relative is going to come by. But not just sooner or later, because you think to yourself, what if the guy's busy? What if he's sick? What if he can't make it wherever he's going to go and he doesn't make it to the gate? Let me remind you, as we've been walking through the book of Ruth, the sovereign care of God over the smallest details of what is transpiring here. Never forget that God is working behind the scenes, not just arranging the big things, but arranging the small things, and nothing happens without him behind the scenes in control. And so he's waiting at the gate. He's sitting there, and it says, behold. I love the word behold because it's always an invitation for the reader to see what the people are seeing. And so you get to sit with Boaz for just a moment, waiting at the gate, eager, anticipating, maybe a little bit anxious, maybe a little bit excited because you don't know how everything is going to unfold. Ruth, I mean, we just moved from chapter three where romance was blooming. We were in the threshing floor and now we are at the gate where legal matters are taking place. But Boaz is here waiting patiently and behold, you get to sit with Boaz. There he is. This is the guy we've been waiting for. And it says, the close relative whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, come aside, friends, sit down here. We have some business to discuss. Now, it's interesting to me that uh, the close relative is unnamed. And interesting, we don't know who this close relative is. And I'd like to suggest the reason he's unnamed is because he does nothing memorable in the story. As opposed to Boaz, who is the kinsman redeemer and chooses to take the responsibility to to bring Ruth under his wing. This unnamed relative does nothing memorable. And I like to suggest that uh, we have a choice to make on a daily basis whether we are going to do something significant for the kingdom of God, investing in the eternal over the temporal, or we are going to be distracted by the things of this world where, where we invest in things where moth and rust destroy. And the greatest way that you can be remembered is not by making a name for yourself, but making a name for God and making him famous in all the earth. You can be remembered for what should be memorable, not by bringing attention to yourself, but directing it all to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a man, Boaz, who is going to be used by God, not just in this narrative, but he is a man who is in the family line from which will come the king, King David, a man after God's own heart, and ultimately the Messiah, who is Christ the Lord. Isn't it amazing when you're available to be used by God? And here you have a man who is unnamed, the close relative Boaz, invites him to sit down. So he sat down, he agreed, and in verse 2 it says, he took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Why? Well, now you've got Boaz, you've got the closest relative, and now legal proceedings can take place. There is a custom in Israel that the closest relative, as the kinsman redeemer, could buy back possessions, could buy back property, and also marry the person um, whose spouse was deceased and 
here is that opportunity. He does it in the presence of these elders so that it's official, so that no one can say, wait a second, I said I was going to marry her, and he doesn't marry her. And so first, of course, you get the invitation. Secondly, in verses 3 to 6, we get to see the conversation that takes place. God makes a way through the invitation, and secondly, through the conversation, picks up in verse 3, and it says, this man went up, oops, excuse me, verse 3 says, I'm in Samuel. Verse 3 says, then he said to the close relative, uh, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of the land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And so he makes no mention of Ruth. Ruth is proposed to him. Ruth is the one that is the business that he wants to discuss, but he brings up the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech, and he says, and I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of the people. Well, probably what happened was when Elimelech and Naomi had moved from Bethlehem to uh, Moab, they perhaps had sold this land, and the kinsman redeemer, the Goel in the Hebrew, has the opportunity to buy back that land to keep it in the family, to maintain the inheritance given to the people of God. And so he gives the report, you have the opportunity as the closest relative to buy back this piece of land. And if you will redeem it, he says, redeem it. Now, I hope you still feel the tension. I hope you still feel the, the sense of, of wondering after we saw what happened in chapter 3, we're really rooting for Boaz and Ruth, aren't you? I mean, we got to see the romance begin to bloom. We got to see how he's cared for. We got to see his character. We got to see her character. And we're really praying. We're really hoping Boaz and Ruth work out. But this could be a real challenge. Ruth could very much marry the closer relative. And so this, how he answers is important. He says, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it. And I am next after you. In other words, if you redeem it, redeem the land. Buy back the land. If not, I'm the next close relative and I will do it. Whew. And then with all of the suspense and the anxiety and the tension, he says, I will redeem it. Oh, man. We were really rooting for Boaz. We were really rooting for Ruth. I mean, after all that's occurred in the story and now you've got this closer relative who's going to do it, then Boaz said, uh, you got to read this, the fine print though. There's an exception clause here, and Boaz says, on that day when you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also must buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead. In verse 10, we're going to see that um, uh, Ruth is the, the widow of Malon. And so if you're going to buy the land back, you have to buy it from not just uh, uh, Naomi, whose husband is past Elimelech, but also Ruth, whose husband is passed, who is the son of Elimelech, and it says, to, why? To perpetuate the name, to continue the family line, to provide that inheritance, for the, uh, perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Then in verse 6, hope begins to arise again, and it says, and the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. Perhaps he had children of his own, Perhaps he did not want to ruin the inheritance for his children. If he had them, we don't know exactly. But he is unwilling to redeem the land and unwilling to marry Ruth to, be, to provide for her security, to provide for her 
an offspring who will ultimately further the inheritance. You redeem my right to redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. You can't help but see the smile that begins to fall on Boaz's face. Maybe serious up to this point with this legal um, transaction. There's hope again for Boaz and Ruth. We have that opportunity. So God's working. God's on the move. We saw the invitation. We saw the conversation. Now let's talk about the confirmation. This is not just speculation. This is what has taken place. Verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. Now, I don't know if you, any of you like feet or you're like, this is just disgusting. And it says here, to confirm anything, one man took off his sandal well, they had dirty feet back then too. They took off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was confirmation in Israel. How many of you would like to do some legal proceedings saying, here, take my sandal. And that's confirmation enough that this it has been an agreement. You got the presence of the elders as well. Verse 8, therefore the close relative said to Boaz, buy it yourself. So he took off his sandal. I wonder if they ever get their sandal back. I don't know. You, do you bring extra sandals for, to the legal proceeding? I don't know. He says, buy it, uh, buy it yourself. So he took off his sandal. Verse 9, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, this is confirmation, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and Malon's from the hand of Naomi, this is confirmation. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife. Wow. To perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. God makes a way where there seems to be no way. I don't know if you were with us in chapter one where we saw the terrible tragedy of a woman who's lost her husband, who's lost her two sons and comes back with a heart that is grieving to the point that she cannot see the goodness of God in the midst of the hardship. But God demonstrates his goodness by providing graces upon graces. And this is not just evident now as the story unfolds. It's evident to everyone who's watching, the elders who are present, all those who are at the gate. And the confirmation continues through a blessing in verse 11. And it says, all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. What are they witnesses of not just legal proceedings, but the power of God at work, but the grace of God that is being becoming more and more evident in the midst of all of the grief that they've experienced. The loyal love of God, the, the, the sovereign care of God who's working behind the scenes, they declare we are a witness. Do I got any witnesses here today of the goodness of God in your own life? The grace of God that is poured out moment by moment and how in times of grief, difficulty, and hardship, God's still there Working. We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. You know what they pray over them? They say, may the Lord bless you, Boaz, and Ruth, your wife. May you have as many children as the wives of Israel, who was previously Jacob. You've got um, uh, Rachel and Leah. They had eight children, right? And then by surrogacy, Four others, and so you got a total of 12. Wow, 
bring on the blessing. The more children, the more blessing that comes. Then it says, and may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in, in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of, of Perez. Now, why Perez here? Well, it's interesting circumstances, the manner in which Perez was born, but as we're going to see at the end of the chapter, Boaz is a, uh, well, Perez is an ancestor of Boaz. And from the line of Perez will come Boaz, which will come Obed and Jesse and then David. And so that's significant. But also Perez was born by surrogacy of Judah. And so that is perhaps a connection there too. But what we're being said here, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar born to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young Woman, I don't know if you see the, the blessing there that's being prayed over him and declared over him, but, but what we get to see there is children are not a burden, children are a blessing. Children, although they're seen in our society and our culture sometimes as, as those who may hold back your career, hold back your happiness in the word of God are seen as great blessings. And the blessing of children is prayed over them. How about you when you were growing up? But as I, I remember going off from high school into those young years, spending time in college, folks are like, no, I'm not getting, well, first off, I'm not getting married. Secondly, I'm not having children until way later. I got a career to pursue. Uh, often, sometimes people say, I'm too selfish to have children right now. But until you have the children, you realize what a great blessing they are because uh, when you have children, every child you have, if the Lord blesses you, is one more step away from yourself. It's one more opportunity to be less selfish because you've got to provide for another. You're not just worrying about yourself anymore. You're providing for this individual and they are a greater blessing than we could ever imagine. We were reminded of that in Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage, an inheritance from the Lord. What's your inheritance? We often think of giving an inheritance to our children. Children are the inheritance. They're the great blessing. One of the greatest blessings that you can have if God provides is a child. The fruit of the womb is a reward. And as you're reading this, we're reminded who gives children? The Lord. If you want to feel like there's not much that you can do, I mean, take a look at the whole birthing process. It's just amazing that over nine months, how God begins to knit together a child in the womb of their mother, and both the mother and the father are completely dependent upon the hand of the Lord. I think the, the time when I felt, you know, just, just like I can't do anything because I'm the father on one side of it. You know, I'm doing nothing over here. All I can do is pray and rely on the goodness of God. Verse four, like arrows in the hand of the warrior, so are children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has a quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. We're reminded that children are a blessing from the Lord. They are a gift from the Lord. They are not a burden. They are a blessing. They may be a surprise to you. You may have not planned them, but certainly by the sovereign hand of God, their lives have been planned, and he's the one who knit them together in their mother's womb. If you've ever been told that you were a mistake, I can let you know you're not, because God is the one who gives the gift of 
children. God is also not obligated to give us children, but we're reminded that if he does, they are a gift from him, and we are to be grateful indeed. And so they pray this blessing over them. In these first 12 verses, we get to see our God at work. Our God is the kind of God who makes a way where there seems to be no way. Have you ever been in the tension at the end of chapter three, just waiting on the Lord, praying, God, when are you going to do? Somebody telling you, sit quietly. Don't tell me to sit quietly, you know? I've got I've to know an answer. This is, has to do with her, her, the husband she's going to marry. This is, has to do with her, her future. Naomi says, sit quietly, wait patiently. She places her confidence in Boaz, but ultimately her confidence in God. God is able to make a way where there seems to be no way. This is not just an opportunity for us to read it in the book of Ruth, but to be reminded of it. I don't know what season of life you're in right now, or if you're in a season of waiting, or if you're crying out to God in time of grief, or wondering, God, what's next for me, but to, but to just wait in the tension and see the evidence of God's love, God's care, God's grace begin to be poured out as you learn to trust him moment by moment and day by day. And I don't know about you, but, but whenever I trust him, he always comes through. He's always faithful. He's always on time. And it's amazing to watch how God makes a way where there seems to be no way. If I could give three ways God does that and then open it up for discussion, they would be these. God often provides for his people through available people. Guys like Boaz, folks like Ruth. Secondly, God often provides for his people through the prayers of his people. You remember Naomi when she prayed that prayer? Even though she, she, she meant it to tell uh, Ruth and Orpah at the time, you guys go back home. I don't have anything to give you. You think I got sons in my womb still? Even if I could, were you going to wait for them? You go back home. You go back to your family and go find rest in the household of your own husband. And the Lord answers that prayer because she said, the Lord deal kindly with you. But for Ruth, it was with Boaz. It was an amazing way. God often provides for his people through the prayers of his people. Thirdly, God often provides for his people through godly-minded people, people of character, people who are virtuous, who, who, who exhibit moral excellence. And so, so first, God often provides for his people through available people. Can I ask this? Uh, what must we be willing to give up in order to be available to serve God and others? What must we, as God's people, be willing to give up in order to become available like Ruth, to become available like Boaz? Yeah, time. Are we willing to prioritize God in our time and say, Lord, whatever you want me to do, it's going to take time, not just spending 30 seconds in prayer in the morning, but saying, Lord, if you want me to do something, do it. And you said resources too. Um, yeah, whatever resources we have, the Lord uses them for his purposes. What else might, must we be willing to give up to be used for God's purposes as available? If you want to be available, what do you have to give up? Our own desires, yeah. Our own plans for our lives. Um, Got to trust God in regards to how he's leading us. Yeah. Yeah, what else do you have to give up? What have you had to give up as you've made yourself available to the Lord's will for your life? Yeah, Amy. 
giving God control over it. Yeah, we like to be in control or feel like we, we, we are. And uh, God often pushes us to the place of saying, I'm not in control and I've got to trust you. And that, that can be hard. But to be available, we've got to give up control. Anything else? Our own will? Yeah, absolutely. And we are often strong-willed at times. We tend to go our own way and know what's, what we think is best for us. Yeah. Anything else you've had to give up? Yeah, Adam. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, you've got to give up sleep. Got to give up sleep. Anything else? Possessions, we got to, yeah, give up our things in order to serve others. Yeah, yeah. Anything else? Oh, what's that? Reputation. Our reputation may be at stake. What, what did you say? Oh, our pride. Our pride's a big one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those go hand in hand, right? Pride and reputation and being willing to give those up. You come out in the workplace as a Christian, you come out of the closet. I mean, that might cost you your reputation in that capacity. We live in America, you gotta give up your comfort, right? We love to be comfortable. We love our air conditioning churches and we love to go about our business as usual, but uh, we give up those comforts for the sake of pursuing Christ and sharing the gospel with others and um, feeling awkward at times. Like you have to enter into awkward conversations to talk to people about Jesus and because we don't want to be awkward or to see how they're going to respond, we say, oh, I don't think, I would rather not be awkward, but that, that 10 seconds of awkwardness, that minute of awkwardness can save someone in eternity from hell. And what a reminder of our need to be available. Um, second question, how has God provided for you through available people that he has placed in your life? Folks who said, I'm here, I'm willing, uh, I'm here to help. Uh, not like the unnamed relative, I'm talking about guys like Boaz. Not like Orpah, if, if you would allow me, but folks like Ruth who would say, Naomi, your people are my people. Your God is my God. Your place of, of, of burial will be my own. How has God provided for you through available people when you needed them most? Yeah, Dennis.
Yeah, yeah. Available people who are willing to tell you what you need to hear versus what you want to hear uh, goes a long way. Yeah, yeah. Anyone else? Just the folks who've been available when you needed them most. Yeah, Lupe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So just the body of Christ coming around you and saying, we're available. We're available to pray. We're available to meet a need. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anyone else want to share? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, since we're talking about availability, who wants to go to China? We need to, you know, we go, we'll put those on you later. God often provides for his people through available people. Secondly, God often provides for his people through the prayers of his people. What are some things we must be willing to give up in order to be people of prayer? What must we be willing to give up to be a man of prayer, a woman of prayer, a, a church of prayer warriors? What do we have to give up? Time, yeah. Television, yeah. Yeah, what did you say, Carla? Oh, no. (laughs) Television, television, entertainment. We've got so many distractions. We would rather be entertained than call upon the God of heaven and earth who created it to intervene, to do a work. Yeah, what else we need to to give up? Social media, yeah. Give up scrolling. Yeah. yeah, anything else? Anything else you, you need to give up in order to, to be a man or woman of prayer? Sleep, yeah. I think that's a big one. I, I struggle with that, you know, sometimes in the morning. That temptation is always there to snooze. Five more minutes, 30 more minutes, it's always right there. And I could be spending that time in prayer, in the Word. Yeah, anything else? Oh, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, step out. Some, some folks say sometimes don't pray for patience because you'll be sorry for what the Lord sends you. Pray for patience. You need it. And it's better to the Lord do it now than later. Carlos, were you going to say something? Oh, sure, sure. Relationships can get in the way of our top priority with the Lord, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just thinking about that, I think, is very helpful. What is getting in the way of you being the man or woman of prayer that God has called you to be and 
just saying, Lord, I'm going to give it up. Um, um, independence can, can, can really be a tough thing to say, Lord, I'm desperate for you. And, and we find ourselves saying, I can do it. I'm, I, I'm capable. I've got the, the willpower. I've got the strength. The reality is we, are, we have nothing without the Lord. Jesus is everything. We need to rely on him. Um, thirdly, God often provides for his people through, through godly-minded people. Um, if you wanted to share what difference have you seen the influence of godly people make in your life, or on the other side of it, how, what kind of influence have you seen ungodly people make in your life? Because God provides through godly-minded people. What difference have you seen as you surround yourself with different people? Yeah, Carlos. So, so godly people don't just tell you sometimes. They'll tell you, but they also live it out, I'm hearing. And that example goes such a far ways. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, telling you, showing you. Amen to that. Anyone else wanted to share? The kind of influence people have had on your life, godly-minded, ungodly-minded. and Yeah, Wanda. Just having the right people that you know you can turn to when you need them goes such a long ways. Yeah, yeah. Godly influences very, uh, go far ways. Uh, ungodly influences go a far ways. Sometimes we're in that work environment where you're working around folks all day, every day, in a different mindset, and there. That's why we reconnect with the people of God. We get back into our huddle as we're going to be sent out during the week, and that's why corporate worship is such a should be such a priority for us or our, our group groups or having those people that we can call up or turn to when we need them the most. And the second question, what is one thing you can do to increase the influence of godly people over ungodly people in your life right now? One thing you can do to, 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 to yeah. Oh, sorry, Dennis. Transparency, yeah. So transparency and a teachable heart, not looking at yourself as a victim, but um, working on moving in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. And that opens you up for the right influences, the right people who will teach, tell you tough things that are difficult to hear, but needed. Yeah. Anything else? One thing you can do to increase? Yeah. 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 Get a prayer partner. You can go up to anybody and say, I'm going to be praying for you. Tell me how I can be praying for you if you'll pray for me. That's a good, that's a good way to start a prayer partner team. Yeah, Lupe? Oh, yeah.
Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so good. Yeah, be careful who you let speak into your life. Are those folks going to lead you closer to the Lord and his will for your life or further away? And, and that goes a long way. Anything else? One thing you can do to, to increase that influence of godly people in your life? Yeah. Good books, yeah. Yeah, reading the right materials. Um, there are some quality Christian authors that you can, it's always nice you can just uh, uh, say, I wonder what so-and-so's thinking right now. You, you go to them, yeah. Oh, I thought, you were, I thought you were saying something, Marianne. No, no, no worries, Marianne. So, uh, so we get to see that, that God works through the prayers of his people, through available people, and through godly-minded people, and we should increase that influence in our lives. We should surround ourselves with, with godly people and invite them to speak into our lives as we get to have opportunity to speak into theirs. Open up in transparency and be willing to hear the tough stuff and be willing to share the tough stuff, and it goes such a long ways where you have actual accountability where somebody's going to hold you accountable and you have an opportunity to hold them accountable. Speak into their life. Ask the tough questions because we're all struggling with something. We're all going through hardships and difficulties and it can be hard. And, and people who say, I know something's wrong because often there is something wrong and you can share that with them. And so uh, God's working as we get to see, he makes a way where there seems to be no way. And then as we, we finish up uh, Ruth, we get to see God works in unexpected ways. God works in unexpected ways as he turns tragedies into triumphs. And that's how we get to see how does he work in an unexpected way to turn the tragedy of Naomi and Ruth into a great triumph indeed. Verse 13 says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Wow, what a moment. Bring you back into the story. This is so exciting. Boaz marries Ruth, and it says she became his wife, and he went into her. They have marital relations, and it says the Lord gave her conception. Who gives children? Who gives the gift? What, time, what moment does that life begin? At the moment of conception, the Lord brings uh, um, um, those things together and you have a child and it says here, she bore a son. Wow, what an exciting, God works in unexpected ways. I don't know about you, but if you've never read this story, I would have never expected, as you were beginning reading the beginning of it, and especially all the tragedy that took place, that Ruth would ever come with Naomi, and that Ruth with Naomi would be blessed in this capacity. She would be married to Boaz, and they would give birth to a son. But not only that, God turned this tragedy into triumph in that capacity, but then it says, then the women said to Naomi, they pronounce a blessing. What do they pronounce a blessing over? Both the giver of the gift and the gift. Listen carefully. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord. Can I remind us when God comes through, when you've been praying on your knees and pleading for him in the midst of your grief and your hardship and difficulty and he pulls you through and he gets you to the other side, you give credit where credit is due. It's a reminder that I gotta be in church on Sunday because God's been working in my life this entire week. So I'm gonna give praise where praise is due. I'm gonna gather with the corporate gathering of God's people. I'm gonna give credit where credit due because God's been too good to me. I can't miss church for that or this or this thing because God's been that 
good. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. There were moments where I'm sure you couldn't see it. God, how are you going to provide for Naomi and Ruth, two widows? Not only that, you've got a foreigner, a Moabite. You've got people looking at her another way, and yet the Lord provides. He's amazing. And may his name be famous in Israel. Don't just, they don't just pronounce a blessing over the giver, but the gift. May the Lord richly bless the gift, the child that has been given, and may his name be famous in all of Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. May he take care of you. May he provide for you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you. You want to know what sacrificial love looks like? Take a look at Ruth. She left everything. Her family, her home, the opportunity even to have a husband back in her homeland, or even have a husband of her choice, she was willing to, 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 to go after Boaz and to, to, to choose the kinsman redeemer who could choose the option to marry her over her own will. And it says, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better than seven sons, has borne him. Do you remember when Ruth had come back? She said, don't call me or when Naomi, excuse me, when Naomi came back, she said, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant, call me Mara, because I had left full, but I've come back empty. She wasn't empty, she had the Lord, but she also had her daughter-in-law, who's better than 10 or seven sons. Whoa, you say, why do you gotta say that? Well, sons were those who were the providers. This is a patriarchal society. They're the ones who provide security for their wife and for their family. They're the ones who provide for their family. They're the ones who have the ability to plant the seed, to provide an inheritance for the next generation. And so she turns to her and says, listen, you've got a, you a daughter-in-law who loves you who's better than 10 sons. Do you see the blessing of God? And certainly she sees it. Isn't it amazing how God begins to change your perspective and has been changing her perspective throughout the story? But, but then, then listen, as we continue to read in the next verse, it just gets more exciting. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Literally, Naomi said, I left full, I've come back empty, and now her hands are full of this little one as she rocks him, as she rests him on her bosom, as it is a reminder, every time she holds that baby, it is evidence that God is sovereign over all the drama that has occurred in her life. It's evidence that God's grace is, is abundant. He, he doesn't just fill your cup, it, it overflows. It's, it's evidence of his unconditional love, his loyal love. It's a reminder that, that God is close to the brokenhearted and he provides for you in ways that you could have never imagined. In the words of Ephesians 3.20, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What are your hands full 
in ways that God has provided for you that remind you that that is evidence that God is sovereign over the drama that's going on in your life? What are those things that you're holding on to that God has provided for you with? It may not be a child. It may be a different way that God has answered your prayers, is working and reminding you of his presence. May you be reminded of his abundant grace. May you be reminded of his unconditional love. May you never forget his sovereign care over your life as you get to hold God's provision in your arms and never forget that when you hold those children. Whatever age or stage they may be at, what a blessing from the Lord, not a burden. When you have an opportunity to have those blessed relationships, when you, when you greet one another on a Sunday morning, not just as strangers, but as the beloved of God, who are adopted sons and daughters of the Lord, may you embrace them as true family brothers and sisters in Christ, and the many other ways that God has provided for you. And amazing how God is able to turn your tragedies into great triumphs. We continue to read. It just keeps getting better. Your cup runneth over. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom. Verse 17, and the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse and the father of David. They don't even know it when it happens from their family line will be a royal line. But not just any royal line. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we learn of what's called the Davidic covenant, a promise that's made between King David and the Lord. And the Lord says, from your throne, that throne is going to be an everlasting throne. And from the line of David will ultimately come the Messiah, who is Jesus Christ the Lord, the King of Kings. And the Lord of lords who has come from heaven to earth to seek and to save that which is lost. That Ruth and Boaz would receive salvation through the finished work of Christ that would come through their seed. Isn't that amazing? Then it says, verse 18, now, this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nishan, Nishan begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, Jesse begot David. Don't miss the genealogy. Genealogies are exciting when you get to see the amazing work of God working through them. That's a tragedy that's been turned into a triumph. That's a God who is worth Worship, the worship that, we, that is due his name to give him glory and honor and praise who does exceedingly, abundantly, above all we ask or think. Can you take a moment just to reflect on what the Lord has been doing, is doing, and will do that's exceedingly, abundantly, above all you could ever ask or think? That's the God we worship and the God we serve. God works in unexpected ways turning tragedies into the greatest triumphs we could ever imagine. Just a couple takeaways as we close today. The first one is this. Give worship where worship is due. Give credit where credit is due. And we are to give the Lord all glory, honor, and praise. Can I ask this? What, what hinders you and I from giving God the credit for the work he has done and is doing in our lives through worship? What keeps us from giving God the credit due? Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, pride. After you prayed for it and you get it and you say, wow, I'm such a great person. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, self takes away from the glory of God. Anything else? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's a discipline. It's a lifestyle. Worship is what we were, we were created for, to glorify him, enjoy him forever. That doesn't just happen in heaven. It's gonna should begin right now in every circumstance. Yeah, give him glory. Be ready when it's easy, when it's tough. Anything else? Anything? Any other ways that hinder you that you can continue to, to pursue worship? Yeah, Lupe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, not getting what we want when we pray and the Lord doesn't answer according to what we thought was best or what we want. When he says no, when he says wait, we say, oh, how can I praise you in the middle of this? This, this is what's best for me, Lord. I know a great plan for my life. Would you just answer it this way? But those are the times we need to trust him the most. Yeah. Yeah. Anyone else want to share? Just a, a good reminder. Give credit where credit is due. Take every opportunity corporately, individually. Uh, we don't come to church because we enjoy the music and enjoy coming under some teaching that might be a little too long for us sometimes, but we, we come to church for the glory of God, to give praises to his name. Um, so give God credit where credit is due, secondly. And finally, continue to trust him. Continue to trust him. Three more things, three more things. First, as you continue to trust him, look to the cross. God in the book of Ruth turns a tragedy into a triumph, but that's just a precursor to the greatest thing that God would ever do when we saw the greatest tragedy that would ever happen when God sent his son from heaven to earth to be born in a manger in the cradle and would go to a cross and die on that cross. What a tragedy. What a tragedy that the God of heaven and earth how we would treat him is that we would murder him and put him to death. Of course, it was all part of the plan of God. But as you look at the greatest tragedy, it made way for the greatest triumph. And three days later, after Jesus hung on that cross and then died and was buried, he conquered sin, death, and Satan on that cross and ratified it in the resurrection three days later. And that's the God we worship and serve. Ruth points us to a, a greater reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. We get to celebrate. Look to the cross. Secondly, as you trust him, look around. Take a look at the people God has provided in your life and thank him. Continue to look around as you continue to trust him and say, Lord, that is a reminder that you are faithful. That's a reminder of your goodness. It's a wonderful thing to have those people around you. Then thirdly, look ahead. God is working. He's making a way where there seems to be no way. God is working in unexpected ways. Look ahead and say, Lord, I'm available to be used by you to do what you have called me. Can I, be, can I find some men like Boaz who are going to step up and serve the Lord, be available and to serve his purpose. Can I find some women like Ruth? I really believe if we as the church would step up and say, Lord, send me, I'm available. Maybe it's my neighbor, maybe it's my coworkers, maybe it's Asia, Africa, some other continent, but I'm going to follow you. Can we pray? Uh, Father, we are grateful tonight to 
just get to read this book, uh, four chapters long, but with wonderful principles to guide and direct our lives. More than anything, it's a reminder of who our God is. And Father, uh, whatever we're going through this week, um, whatever we're going to get into tomorrow, Lord, and the challenges that we face, the difficulties of life that's come up, Father, maybe some folks are just dealing with intense suffering. May we just lean into you. And in times of sorrow, difficulty, grief, just see your grace at work. We thank you, Lord, that you love us, that your grace is, 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 is not what we deserve, but you give it to us anyways. And so we're thankful for that, Lord. May we look ahead how you're going to continue to work in our hearts, our minds, and our lives. Make us available. Help us to put aside anything that would hinder our walk with you and our usefulness to you. We give you thanks for these things, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.